Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of this week's biggest national and international politics stories, read for us by Morag Lindsay. Government minister who has paid more than £115,000 says the cost of living rise will be tricky for his household. Kit Malthouse was speaking on the same day he received a pay rise of £2,212. MPs' salaries went up to £84,144 on Friday. It comes on the same day as the biggest jump in domestic energy bills in living memory. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace claims Russian President Vladimir Putin is now a man in a cage he built himself. As the Russian war against Ukraine entered day 37, the Defence Secretary, a former MSP, said Russia's president no longer bore the force he used to. And the UK government is being urged to extend a life assurance scheme for nursing staff who contract COVID at work. The Royal College of Nursing said that after this week, nursing staff who die from COVID-19 will not be entitled to a life assurance payment. That's despite rising infection rates and a growing number of nursing staff catching the virus. Thanks, Morag. Now, let's turn our attention to what's been happening in another fun-packed roller coaster of a political week in Scotland. If it seems everything's happening at once, don't be alarmed. It is. Covid rules are being jettisoned as infections soar. Good luck finding a flow test. The cost of living is about to condemn households to poverty, while MP pay goes up. Scotland's route map to weaning itself off oil and gas has been delayed despite climate change. In Holyrood, we witnessed a pretty tough First Minister's questions with Nicola Sturgeon. Our nationalised ferries aren't being built just as our trains get nationalised. The list goes on. We here at Stushi know you are pouring over these events to help inform you as we head to the local elections in May. So you might also be surprised to learn that 18 councillors just got elected yesterday without a vote being cast. I'm joined here by colleagues Justin and Adele to help us get to the bottom of all these things. Justin, how is it possible for a councillor to be elected at the end of March when the election is in May? So essentially all the political parties um, submitted their candidates lists this week as we kind of run up to the council elections at the start of May. Obviously there are also independent candidates and wards as well. However, due to the election system we use, STV, there are multi-member wards. So in every ward where people live, there will be multiple candidates elected, generally between two and five However, what that means is that if there are less than the required number of candidates in any area, the ones who are standing are automatically elected. Now, in some areas, we've even had seats that were under-contested. So in the Western Isles, for example, there are two wards where there is only one candidate standing and there are two seats. That means there will need to be by-elections after May. This has happened before. In 2017, there were three wards where it happened. In 2007 and 2012, it didn't happen at all. So it has become a much larger problem this year. Yeah. I spoke to Alan Folds from Ballot Box Scotland and he outlined some of the issues which are causing the problems. Um, one of which he suggested in rural areas in Scotland is that some of the councils are too large and that perhaps disincentivizes people from standing. He also claimed that local government is just not particularly valued in Scotland and this appears to have a bit of a feedback loop where... National governments don't seem to recognise the work that local governments do. If local governments aren't funded, people in constituencies then don't value local government as well. If people don't 
value who government that just kind of feeds on and feeds on to the point where people don't really understand what their councils do mm-hmm. and what their councillors are meant to represent them for. Yeah, you spoke. To, you said you spoke to Alan Falls, and he had some. He had some pretty strident thoughts about it and, and the way that the, 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 this is all set up. But we, we also heard from councillors themselves. Um, I, I think when I was thinking about the story uh, yesterday, I was thinking of it very much from a sort of voter's point of view. Um, but it's it's not good news for councillors either because um, you know it 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 undermines. Their position. Um, I spoke to to a guy, a conservative um, who's newly elected, Neil McLennan, in Bucky and Finetti. He in Murray. He he was pointing that out. He said he was looking forward to a contest, and you know he hasn't been able to go to any doorsteps really and put his case. You know, hear hear the criticisms, get a proper gauge on on what the views are. Um, candidates aren't getting that rigorous inter- interrogation um, if they're just getting uh, waved through. You also mentioned the 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 lack of available um, candidates in some places where we're going to have expensive by elections, and people, I suppose, don't realise just how costly that is and how time consuming it is. And if people don't want to even turn up in droves on um, on the actual election, what use is a by election going to be? I mean, about five men and a dog will turn up. What what does this mean for local democracy, though? I mean, are people just turned off? Why is that? I think, as a general rule, council elections will tend to have lower turnouts than national elections. That's normal. It's not necessarily good, though. And as I was saying, I think if people start to realise that, or the people who are living in an area where there's nobody to vote for, you have a situation where people aren't going to be voting in a council election in some areas for 10 years, if not longer, if if this repeats in five years. That can't be healthy for democracy. And even if some of these candidates are shoe-ins anyway, As you say, I think it's very important that candidates get out in the campaign trail. It's a pretty fundamental part of becoming a politician. Obviously, some of those candidates themselves will want to get that experience. You know, if you want to, say, go into national politics, if you want to go to Holyrood or to Westminster, being elected and competing for election is a pretty fundamental part of entering politics in the first place. And noticeably in the Highlands where the Scottish Greens gained a seat, one of the, one of their candidates has now been elected without having to essentially run. They themselves said that this was concerning. They said there was a severe lack of democratic interest. So even though it's beneficial for some of these political parties, they are obviously worried as well. If they want to build a profile at local government level, if they want to be standing in councils, mm-hmm. they are aware that they perhaps have less authority if these candidates haven't even had to fight for election in the first place. Yeah, I mean, there was some... Well, well, uh, no names as well who, who are suddenly councillors. I saw Tom Morton, broadcaster and journalist in Shetland. He he's one of the the people who's now elected without having to submit to a vote. He's interesting as well because he's been elected for Labour. It's a Labour gain, um, a party um, that I don't think has any representation at council level in Shetland, which is full of independent councillors. Um, so I mean that as well. And then back to to my my Bucky. Um, example, one of the councillors who's been elected there is a Liberal Democrat, and uh, listening to people who who were talking about the voting patterns there, it's highly unlikely that had there been an extra SNP, extra Tory um, sort of candidate, it's highly unlikely that the Lib Dem would have actually got in anyway. So it's it's skewing it's skewing the the landscape. Although I'm sure the Lib Dem, I'm sure they'll they'll be pretty delighted to get the foot in the door anyway. Okay, well. 
the lucky 18 who are now in place won't have to worry too much about the impact of day-to-day grind on, on the, their chances of being elected anymore. But what do the rest of our politicians have to worry about today? Maternity services were downgraded in Elgin some time ago now, and there's been a steady stream of stories about the serious impact that's had on parents. Adele, you've been following this one closely. Can you bring us up to date? Um, it's been years in the making. What's the What's the latest? Yes, Andy. So as you said, the the services there were downgraded in the summer of 2018. So we're now already coming up to four years on from that downgrade. So what that means in essence is that the majority of women that are giving birth in Murray must do so in either Aberdeen or Inverness because it's only a midwife-led unit. So that's your more kind of straightforward birth <laughs> if there is such a thing um would happen at elgin but otherwise the majority of women are having to travel really far distances and so the latest with the situation was there was an independent report done which which completed in december and then the health secretary committed to sort of meet with campaigners he he came up to the north and northeast where he met with them and he considered what they had to say before reporting back this week so this week he announced that the government's intention is to get that consultant-led unit back in place. I guess where the stumbling block now is, is how there was no sense of, there was no timescales at all as to when this would be achieved. So I guess the worry that the campaigners have have said they welcome it with some cautious optimism, but it does seem the timescales issue is what is most concerning people. Well, you, you spoke to Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf this week as well, I try and pin down a little bit more on the time scale. Um, so what, what what are the campaigners saying? I mean, they, what kind of time scale has he given? When can we really see this happening? Well, I tried hard to, to find that out. <laughs> it was tight-lipped, to, to say the least, yeah. Yeah, so he was m- making the point that the work is ongoing just now to determine that timetable. So the timetable for the timetable is around autumn this year. They should hope to be able to say what kind of time scales we're looking at. But in several of his comments to me, I, I know, picked up that he was saying years, years, year, couple of years. So I think it's safe to say, I would say, <laughs> that it will be years. And I asked him in particular if he thought it would be in this parliament. And he said he couldn't preempt the work that was happening. Sorry, this parliament ends in 2026. So I think we are potentially, sorry, he said he couldn't say either way whether it would or it wouldn't. But um, that's not going to be reassuring news to women who are giving birth you know now tomorrow in in two years time it's a really live political issue as well i mean one of the one of the people who uh, who has first hand family experience of of the the downgrading of dr grays was was douglas ross the leader of the scottish conservative party who's a murray mp and an msp for the highlands and islands now you've spoken to him in the past as well about the the, the experience his wife had I mean that that's one example of 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 um of how everything all plans can be changed at the very last minute. I mean what kind of experiences are people having you know having to move quickly away from Elgin to Aberdeen? Yeah, I mean some of them are are really horrific. The one in particular which stands out to most people is a, a woman from Murray Alexandra Naylor who gave birth in a lay-by of A96 in an ambulance, but yeah, the, the ambulance had to pull into this lay-by and, and she told her story about how she was sort of um, restricted by seatbelts and you know what, like, uh, uh, giving birth, I imagine, is a horrendously stressful experience anyway without feeling that you're on the side of a lay-by in the A96. It just doesn't feel good enough in Scotland and in, in the year 2022 that women are still having to 
experienced this. One other thing that stood out to me, I spoke with Jill Skeen. She is the chair of a Northeast sort of maternal mental health charity. And she said, so they help women, I think, as far as Elgin, Inveruri, Aberdeen, etc. And she said that it's the women in Elgin that stand out as having the most levels of anxiety and birth trauma of the women that mm. they help in the Northeast. And uh, yeah, one statement in particular, she said she doesn't personally know a woman that she's met from there that does not is not either suffering anxiety or birth trauma. And I think that's really, that's a shocking yeah. place to be where every woman she's encountering from that from from there is is experiencing these horrendous things and i think that really it really humanizes the issue and just shows shows what's at stake here yeah um well we look forward to the timetable for the timetable talking of timetables and missed deadlines and and things like that another story which just keeps coming up with baggage of its own and that's the ferries um, we talk about this quite a lot and a lot of listeners will, will know a couple of vessels have been under construction for years now at the Ferguson Yard on the Clyde. That yard was failing, was nationalised, the trouble continued and we're still waiting. Uh, this is not just an issue for islanders who are clearly bearing the brunt of not having a, a proper reliable service with, with good new uh, vessels to, to use. But it's of interest to anyone wondering about government accountability and um, competence. On Thursday, Labour leader Anas Sarwar reminded Nicholas Sturgeon how eye-wateringly expensive it was to install a so-called turnaround manager to get this yard back on track. And that's before we get to, you know, the, the latest updates. We can just have a wee listen back now to First Minister's questions. This was what Anas Sarwar had to say. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? I mean, let's... Who is the First Minister kidding? I don't hear any apology or any regret for paying this man £2 million. Let's not forget that £2 million was to turn around the yard, but the ferries still aren't delivered, are costing more and are delayed again. And this email, also found from Freedom of Information Requests, shows that government advisers actually suggested Tim Hare needed a decent pay package so the life wasn't, and I quote, unnecessarily painful for him while he swapped Hampshire for Port Glasgow. Shocking and out of touch. Families right now are having to count every penny. At the same time, Tim Hare says, and it seems the First Minister is suggesting, that he was value for money. Does the First Minister honestly think he's been value for money? And if not, what is she going to do to recover £2 million of taxpayers' money? First Minister make clear, I don't think the experience of this contract has been acceptable in any way, shape or form. Uh, but the focus now, uh, under the new Chief Executive of the shipyard, is to get the ferries completed in the interests of island communities um, and to secure the future of the shipyard. That's what the Government is going to focus on. Uh, we continue uh, to focus on, and that is in the interest not just of island communities, but that is in the interest uh, of those who work in that shipyard. Justin, this clearly has spilled over into a general row about the government's handling of the whole thing. Uh, you, you took a look at that a little bit more in detail this week. Um, and as a, as, a, as a proud Inverclyde lad yourself, um, would £2 million make it less painful? Well, yeah, this has been one of those issues which, as you say, keeps on rumbling on and rumbling on. It refuses to go away. So I think at the heart of this, there's a bit of a contradiction. Whether you take the government side or whether you take the opposition side, here... 
this was seen as a way for the government to keep building ships in the Clyde, continue that legacy which has been there for generations. Obviously, since then, it has gone horribly wrong. The ships have not been delivered yet, and the government have obviously now nationalised Ferguson's. They say that it's still viable to build ships on the Clyde. However, at the same time, they are outsourcing other deals abroad. It almost feels like if they don't feel that ships can be built in the Clyde, they need to admit that. However, at the same time, because they want to keep jobs in the Clyde, because that was seen as a big coup for them at the time, they continue to insist that ships can be built at Ferguson's, despite the fact that all evidence kind of works to the contrary. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that struck me about the First Minister's question this week was that there was a lot of kind of laughing rather than the usual sort of often faux outrage, to be to be fair. But it, it must have been a particularly unhappy encounter, I think, for, for, the, for the SNP there. Although, the, you know, Nicola Sturgeon has plenty of answers for the opposition but it's healthcare transport and and now of course domestic energy supply as well I mean, we're fast running out of time to fit in all the updates but Adele we also saw delays to a major promised plan on getting away from oil and gas this has been a big platform policy for Nicola Sturgeon and she's under questioning a lot about how we're going to move from a dependency on oil and gas jobs in particular to a, a low carbon decarbonized future the plan is now delayed we're another time scale for a time scale is this all because of putin's war in ukraine or something else going on here yeah so we've been keeping tabs on the publication of the just transition plan which will effectively look at how we move away from fossil fuels and towards more uh, more green uh, alternative forms of energy and where the jobs will lie in the, in that sector um, so we've heard it will be published in the the Scottish government's plan will be published in the autumn instead of the spring, and the UK government has also, I believe, delayed their new energy security strategy. So it is likely that the Scottish government is wanting, I guess, to see to see that strategy and how it might factor into their own plans. But I think that this leaves things in a bit of a strange situation. For the SNP, because we saw yesterday in, in that quite fiery FMQs, there was a former SNP Energy Secretary Fergus Ewing actually stood up and and he kind of yeah. pressed the First Minister on issues around oil and gas and, and and why we need a thriving oil and gas sector in order to use that expertise to move into net zero. So I think it's this delay probably won't benefit the government because it it, it does leave quite a lot of unanswered questions. I think. The, the the plan was supposed to be out in spring, which would have been before the election, but now it's autumn as well. So there's there's a perhaps a sigh of relief that there's not going to be some um, sharp timetable of how we're going to get from oil and gas to something else for someone to explain on the doorstep as well. But um, it, you know, obviously the whole global situation is upended at the moment, and um, you know it's not just the Scottish government that's having to deal with these problems. Um, but while all these issues are affecting communities. Um, in the background, of course, COVID is still looming large. We're supposed to be heading to normality now, according to, to the government, but it doesn't really feel like that to me. My house has been full of the virus and we can't get a flow test for love nor money, even though it's still advice to test just to get out of the house. Um, feels a bit surreal at the moment to hear it's just time to get on with it. What about you two? Do you feel the same? 
Well, I kind of was looking at this earlier this week and listening to National Clinical Director Jason Leach on the radio yesterday, he obviously hinted a note of caution about COVID. Cases remain high. He suggested that if you have cold or flu symptoms at the moment, you probably have COVID due to how many cases there are. But he also did hint that we are getting to a stage where we're moving on and that is backed up by the fact that Nicholas Sturgeon confirmed we will be scrapping masks in a couple of weeks. Obviously, the Scottish Tories have been urging her, urging her to go quicker. They want masks scrapped immediately. But I think from the SNP's point of view, they will see it as a sensible precaution. I think a lot of people are still OK wearing a mask, especially when it's not that demanding. It's in shops or on public transport. So they will see that as an easy win to look cautious. But at the same time, they are, they are appearing cautious. There is a kind of tacit admission that we seem to be moving past the pandemic. Free testing will end in Scotland before too long. As has been mentioned, it's now becoming more difficult to access free tests as well. So even if the government won't quite admit yet that we are past the pandemic in their eyes, the policies we're seeing and the lack of restrictions we're seeing very much indicates that they are saying it's essentially time to move on. No, a sense that, you know, a lot of people that I know who had managed to get away with getting it for two years, suddenly getting it, it's absolutely everywhere. Folk who've never had it before are suddenly having it, but we're being told that this is the time for to 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 step off and and let everything just just run um i mean i don't know we're kind of spread around the country on this chat right now but where i am can't get a flow test anywhere even though it's still advice to test um it's what the government keeps punting out so um adele i mean where where you are i mean are you, you seeing anything different are people still wearing masks can you get a flow test are people listening to the rules anymore does even anyone know what the rules are yeah, we're definitely in a strange position, as you say, where I think, I mean, it all depends on who you are, but anecdotally, I've never known, uh, I very luckily had, didn't actually know a lot of people that had it in in other stages of the pandemic that were very close to me. And now, just in the last month, it feels like that it's closing in lots and lots of people that I know are catching it, but at the same time, so for them, it maybe feels like a very live issue. It's the first time they've ever had COVID. But on the other hand, you know, you're struggling to get hold of tests and we're hearing about masks going away. It's just, it's quite hard to get your head around the idea of living with COVID as they as they always say. I know I tried to order some more this morning. Today's actually the day I think it ends in, in England. Yeah. And right enough, it asks you where you are and you put Scotland. It says, right, you can, you can keep going through. And then it just comes up with what it did for me this morning, that there were none available. And it also said online that chemists weren't giving them out anymore. So it almost seems like we don't have the tools there to, to keep, you know, if you're a close contact, you're meant to be testing for for many days a week, I think it is. I lose track now. Um, so it, how can you do that if if you can't access the tests? Yeah. It's a bit strange. Yeah, exactly the same situation um, here too, where I couldn't find any on the NHS yesterday and all the pharmacies in a six-mile radius are out. So it feels as though the rules in Scotland are just following the rules in, in England by default. Anyway, looking forward to back to normality which seems to be what we do after every crisis um okay well that's that for this week uh, while we get back to normal like the rest of you are it leaves me to say thanks to adele merson justin bowie producer morvin mcintyre and of course to you for listening we'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then pick up or log on to the courier the press and journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed goodbye
The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.